Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When I was in years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of I was laying there, practically naked, and I had her hold me as if I was naked. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were all right back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this flight. One of my first questions I asked was, Is there evidence of human like chords untangled over here because there's just a bunch of stuff and i'm like which one i was only hearing that come out of one half of the speakers there so i was like Wait, what's going on i'm gonna fix it man <laughs> gosh yeah eventually we'll, <laughs> we'll get we'll get that done with the, our chord problem and uh we're back it's paranormal it is may 22nd That's right it's still sunday yeah it's still sunday you guys are probably hearing this a week after, somewhere around Memorial Day. Uh, so we recorded earlier in the day with uh, Jarmo Puscala, 
And tonight we have Jim King coming on. He's also known as Bear King. He is uh, a member of the uh, podcast, The Sasquatch Outlaws. So we're glad to have him come on. We're going to talk about uh, the dark side of Bigfoot. Some weirdness that surrounds Bigfoot, as if Bigfoot really isn't weird enough. But it is what it is. Rob, how you doing, brother? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm ready for some... uh some chicken legs after this. It's been a long day. <laughs> yeah, it has been. Uh, we have someone sitting sitting in. Uh, Rob, why don't you introduce introduce him? Yeah, we got my uh, my good friend Brett here in the studio with us. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? I'm I'm excited to hear about this uh, dark meat uh, Sasquatch. <laughs> talking about that sounds good. I don't know. I dark taste side of Sasquatch. Oh, like, yeah, like, like he's a, like he's a Sith. I don't know if he had white meat was better or something. <laughs> I want to try. You, you can take the headphones off. By oh, the way, I like him. <laughs> I like the the intro music. That was badass. Oh yeah, thank you. That was uh, that was done by Luke, our co host, who isn't here. Oh, he might show up though. Isn't there a rumor that he might show? Oh, up? maybe. Okay. No, that's always. Well, let's keep, the, always whole, let's keep the hope alive. We're, we always have about a five percent chance, right? Oh. Uh, wanted to kind of cover something in this intro. Um, this is. I want to talk about what's going on in Brazil right now. This is something that is going to be, I think, if not already widely in the news, it's going to be in the news pretty soon in a couple of months with the Olympics. <coughs> Excuse me. This is something kind of close to my heart as well, because, you know, my wife is Brazilian and my stepson is Brazilian. So I know a little bit about what what's going on down there. I've been there a couple of times in my life since we've been married and it's a really beautiful country, but it has, I think, just a ton of problems and, and always has. Um, if anyone doesn't know, this happened, I think, around the same time that we went to Paradigm Symposium. Uh, the Brazilian president, Dilma Rousseff, has been impeached in the capital city of Brasilia. Um this is in response to a lot of things that have been going on down there. Uh, Brazil, in 2002, elected, his name was Lula, and he was the head of the party called the Labor, or the Workers' Party. And actually, if it translated into Portuguese, the Portuguese acronym is PT. They were a left-wing party. And in 2010, Lula stepped down uh, pretty much essentially, you know, through election, kind of similar to what's going on with Obama and with Hillary Clinton right now. He's pretty much handed to his successor, Dilma Rousseff. At the time in 2010, there, the economy was really well. Brazil was on an upswing. They were, I think, to consider the seventh largest world economy, which is none too shabby. And... What um, what had begun to happen around 2012, 2013, Brazil got the World Cup. They got the Olympics, and that's coming up in 2016. What began to happen in 2013 was being you began to see tons of protests over the World Cup coming to Rio de Janeiro. And a lot of people were complaining that because there were some like restrictions and all these kind of money that were, you know, trading hand with FIFA, the soccer organization. 
they were uh, frustrated because they said, we don't want the games unless because we can't even have free education and free health care, which is um, granted to them by their constitution. Well, this caused a lot of social strife in Brazil. Uh, in 2014, they had the World Cup, which Brazil lost. They didn't even, I don't think they even got to the finals, or like semifinals in uh, in their own country. Uh, after that, there was this scandal called the Petrobras scandal. Petrobras is the government-owned Brazilian a Brazilian oil company. The government and government officials, including the president, were accused of handing over contracts, uh, putting money under the table, bribes uh, to the all these um, these uh, guys that working on utilities, working on construction, these contractors. So this had, this had been going on, and people had been demanding. Jilma's resi- demanding Jilma's resignation, demanding her she leave. Long story short, this basically culminated in this impeachment. Uh, and now that you have the Olympics coming up, there's even more concern in Brazil because you have the Zika virus that's down there. And a, Bra- a Brazilian soccer player has actually said, uh, fairly well known, he has actually said, don't come to Brazil. He's telling people, don't come to Brazil for the Olympics because of the Zika, because of the, uh, <clears throat> because of the crime, because of the political unrest, and also because of the pollution in the, some of the where they're going to play the water sports around Rio is pretty much raw sewage. And they don't even want the, Olympic, the Olympians in there. So all these different problems have culminated into this crisis that Brazil is having now. Uh, And make no bones about it, it is a crisis. They've actually already, under this current constitution, they've already impeached one president for kind of the same similar kind of bribes and and, and that kind of thing. Um, So now there's an acting president. Because when, in the Brazilian constitution... The president isn't doesn't just stay in power. We kind of like what we do when when uh, we impeach presidents, like what we did with Clinton. Okay, uh, she stays in power, but well, she doesn't stay in power. She actually has an acting president uh, while they they have the trial of impeachment. If they decide not to remove her, she goes back. If they decide to if they do decide to remove her, of course she's gone. So now, interesting things about this acting president. His name is Michael Tormir. He is uh, Brazil's first Lebanese-descended president. Apparently, some people are saying that he was connected to a lot of U.S. oil companies. He was connected to the CIA. And a lot of this stuff is coming out now, and a lot of it is from the Workers' Party in Brazil, the PT saying that uh, America is behind this. What do you think, Rob? Well, I haven't, um, all the details I have on this, I've got from you. Um, we talked a little bit about it about a week ago. Mm-hmm. And at that point I had no idea that this, any of this was going yeah. on. Like I knew there was some kind of political unrest and that was basically all the information I had. Um, I mean, I think it's entirely possible. I wouldn't put it past our government. Mm-hmm. 
They've actually done it before. There was a military coup in Brazil in 1964 that, and the military government actually t- lasted 20 years until 1985. So it's, it's happened before. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's I'm, a precedent for it. And if there's a motive, yeah. then there's no reason not to be suspicious. Yeah, it's true. And Brazil's definitely gone through this before. Yeah. I don't know whether it, whether that is, it is the case, but you've got, you know, I, I really what, it's also interesting in in light of what's going on in Venezuela right now too. Venezuela's economy has basically collapsed. Like their society is in the middle of collapse and I only found out about this like a couple of weeks ago cuz I was kind of focused on Brazil and what was going on. I wasn't as much focused at what was happening right next door to it. And you know, right. Venezuela also ruled was also also ruled by a leftist party. Uh Hugo Chavez was the leader of that party till he died in 2013. You know, he wasn't exactly the best either. I mean, it's your, I'm going to declare myself president for life, you know? <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, their economy is collapsed. Uh, people are, are waiting in line to, uh, to get commodities. Uh, hospitals are running without electricity, which is causing babies to die. I mean, there's all kinds of horrible and, and other patients. There's all kinds of horrible stuff that's that's going on in Venezuela right now. And again, another leftist government. So it's interesting that these two are kind of coinciding with each other. Either it's the United States is meddling and maybe trying to get its claws back into Latin America, because over the last 15 years. We've really lost a lot of our kind of like our influence because of people like Hugo Chavez, because of people like Lula in in Brazil, and you know now we're even we're making inroads with Cuba, trying to make peace with them. You know maybe it could be that we're shifting back, possibly to trying to put a, a foothold again into into countries like Venezuela and Brazil, all of Latin America, really, and. <clears throat> But at the same time, could it just be that it's possible that these two socialist-oriented parties have essentially become nothing more than nothing better than the parties that came before them? Like in Brazil, especially. I mean, the government before the PT, the PT was such a big hope for the Brazilians in 2002. I mean, I remember being around Brazilians in Atlanta, and they were so happy that this guy had been elected. Well, eventually that turned completely around. And I mean, completely. I mean, and you know, so, so have they just, have they just ultimately proven And Venezuela may be the same thing. So have they just ultimately proven themselves to be just as bad and now they're failing and the United States will probably still reap the benefit, but are we necessarily behind it? That's right. Right. So, well, I do think it's, it's hard for, it's hard to change things like that on that kind of scale. Like I, I think they have a tendency to always go back to their to the old to the way things have been, yeah, kind of done. Um, yeah, there's a lot in that culture that's kind of, yeah. Well, I'll take a gift here, which really means a bribe, and uh, that kind of stuff that that goes on. So, yeah. <laughs> what are you gonna say, Rob? I was just gonna say I don't know them culturally the way the way you are. I'm not familiar with, you know, any kind of um, 
tendencies towards creating that kind of a system. I just, I've seen, I feel like, I feel like that happens in the Middle East and other places where like someone new comes to power, this is going to be what fixes it. Oh, everything's the same kind of mm-hmm. that sort of cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we, we tend to do the same thing, don't we? Yep. I mean, you look at Obama and, uh, how much your hope. And then now, you know, Trump is kind of doing the same thing, right? He's kind of, but, but just for the other side. And yeah, yeah we, we tend to lionize these people. And then all of a sudden we, we, we hate them. Although I'm sure there's still a few people that really just love Obama and don't, you know, think the sun shines out of his butt, but right. <laughs> I'm sure they're out there. Um, Hey guys, we got about 10 minutes and we're going to get Jim Bear King on. Uh, we're going to talk about a, another s- serious subject, and that would be Mr. Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll be right back. All right, guys, we are back on Conspiracy Normal, and we have the guest on the line, and that is Mr. Jim Bear King. And Jim is going to talk to us tonight about, well, what he terms as kind of the dark side of Bigfoot. Uh, but Jim, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Oh, pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Good pleasure to have you. Uh, I want to actually get your background, you know who you are, what it is that you do, and, you know, what, how'd you kind of got it started? Uh, what got you interested in studying Bigfoot? Well, uh, when I was, uh, I, I was born in 60, but you don't want the log cabin spill, so I won't go that direction. <laughs> All right, no problem. But uh, lived uh, on the farm back in uh, north central Mississippi, out in the sticks. We were five miles from any town. And it was a town. It was one of them that rolled up the sidewalks when the lights went out every evening and uh, had a railroad track run through it. Never really went to any big cities. Big cities uh, were Memphis and Jackson, Mississippi, Memphis, Tennessee. But uh, when I was six years old, me and my brother, uh, what happened, uh, my mother and father had gotten a divorce and it was real fresh. The reason I can remember my age, my sister was, uh, six weeks old because my father left when she was about four weeks old. And it was a pretty traumatic time for my mother Mm, back in the mid mid sixties. We, uh, didn't have air conditioner. You know, I, I mean, we're, we're talking old school here. Uh, we would uh, raise every window in the house and put uh, a, a fan, a regular fan, oscillating fan, out the one of the windows in the dining room, which was at the other end of the house. What that would do was cause the air to circulate through the house, you know, on a draw. Right. And uh, we, the bedrooms were at the back end of the house. Uh, me and my brother's bedroom was facing back toward the east on the back side of uh, our property. And uh, my mother's bedroom was on the west side. So it was basically across the hallway from us. 
mom would always keep the door open, especially uh, after my father left, because she wanted to make sure everything was going on the house. And we, she had a brand new child in the house you know, and everything. And sure, I vaguely remember my sister uh, probably was colicky, but you know, uh, newborn kids, babies, whatever they infants, they real fidgety anyway about eating, you know, and have to be nursed quite often during the night. And <clears throat> so she was probably doing baby noises and crying and so forth and so on. And I do know that my mother was real depressed. We just didn't know why at six years of age. Yeah, it's so hard to understand mom never that. Wanted yeah. To re- oh, yeah. 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 It's one of them deals where you got to put yourself in a situation to understand it. And uh, I do not know what time it was that night. I know my sister was born in July, so right at six weeks later. Uh, this probably puts us into mid August. So it was probably a hot, salty summer night in, uh, the South. <clears throat> and, uh, I, something woke me up. The bed was backed up with a headboard against the West wall. And at the foot of the bed, we had a window that looked out on the backside of our property uh, when my dad and my grandfather built the house, they brought in a bulldozer that pushed the foundation dirt to make it level up against the backside of the property. Uh, it was the only acre of land on my granddaddy's place that, uh, we still do not own to this day because mom had to sell the house due to the divorce. And, uh, it kind of put the backside of the property when it was pushed up into a mound type situation on a higher level, which actually made where my grandfather replaced the barbed wire fence because he had cattle and horses and we didn't want them roaming over the property in the front yard or backyard. So we could actually look out the back window and see this fence, you know, but getting back to the story that night, it had to either be a full moon or a very bright night. Because, you know, once I woke up, your eyes are already uh, ambient to all the outside light. I mean, you, you've been asleep in the dark and you everything. You, I, was, I looked out the window and you could see that little slope with the barbed wire fence. It, it wasn't plain as day, but it was clear enough that you can see what was going on. But what, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> what had awakened me was something was making a noise outside the bedroom window and it was going like this. I, I, I still remember it to this day. It was going. Hmm. Well, not an ordinary sound, you know? <laughs> no, sir. <Yeah. laughs> it, absolutely not. And uh, I was able to, I, I, I recognized that it was coming outside the bedroom window. It was about uh, maybe 15, 20 yards from the window to where the fence line was on top of that little slope. Uh, I cannot remember if it was a five-strand or a four-strand barbed wire fence, but I do know in latter years, when the fence started falling in, uh, it, it come up to about four and a half to 
almost five foot tall. And uh, something was draped over the top strand of that barbed wire fence on the opposite side of the house from the, you know, opposite side of the fence from the house. Whatever it was, was stooped down and it had both arms, the armpits, armpits were draped over the top strand of that barbed wire fence. And it, in the dark, it was a blackish type color. I really don't know what color the hair was because of it being dark. But when it started this cooing, clicking noise, it was slowly swaying its head from the right to the left. It's kind of like it was a hypnotizing type motion, you know, but I, I think yeah. it was more of a common factor. I, you know, this is hindsight's twenty twenty when you look back on things like this over the years. And uh, it was steadily cooing and clicking. Well, my brother, he was uh, almost two years younger than me, slept with me in the bed. I I just couldn't actually believe what I was seeing. So my automatic reaction was to wake him up. And I woke him up and I pointed out. I said, look, look, look out the back window. Look, 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 look up on the hill. And he got a glimpse of this thing. Now, you got to understand, my brother's one of those type people that uh, when he sees something he don't like, he gets the heck gone in a yeah. hurry, quick. Yeah. He abandoned me in that bedroom. <laughs> well, fear evokes fear. I mean, you know, as long as he was sitting there, I was fine, it seemed like, at the time. But the minute he was gone, I got a case of I got to get gone, too. Yeah, you can't uh, blame him. You can't fault him for that. No, sir. Yeah. No, sir. Don't blame him at all. It wasn't like we was going to walk over there to Linda and get a closer look either. <clears throat> but uh, he ran across the hallway and dove into my mom's bed. I was immediately on his rear end, and I dove in there, too. Of course, this woke mom up. But when it did, it also, if I can remember, I'm not sure or not if it woke my baby sister up or not, but Mom immediately woke up. She, I get the impression that she was already awake. And due to the, you know, the stage level that she was going through with uh, separation from my dad in the sixties, yeah. which that that is not a southern thing in the nineteen sixties. You know, it's just something that <coughs> evokes a reputation, yeah. even if it don't belong. It's you know different I mean? time period. Yeah, it really was. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And she she excitedly, what's wrong, what's the matter, so forth, so on. And all I remember is me and my brother both, the best way we could describe it, mama, mama, there's a big monkey outside our bedroom window on the fence. Wow. Hanging over the fence, you know. <clears throat> Mom got us calmed down enough that, you know, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, uh, there's no such things as monkeys, you know, in around here right but you wasn't going to convince me and my brother because we both knew what we saw i mean we was telling the same story and i'd got a longer look of it which it wasn't long enough probably maybe less than a minute you know how reactionary time is but i'd seen it more plainer than my brother had he just saw a monkey and he got gone <laughs> and uh i do remember out of that whole deal mom never got out of the bed to go see 
what was outside our bedroom window. She allowed us both to sleep in the bed with her that night. And I think less than probably two months after that, we had to sell the house because mom was a single mother and working and there was no way she could afford the house payments. And we moved in with my grandfather. Okay. Did you can, did you continue from that point to start having the same kind of experiences? Well, yes. And that's, that's what was so cool about this, but it was cool later on in life. As long as it was the unknown, it wasn't so cool, you know? Yeah, I got you. <laughs> but <clears throat> it was 1970. Now I'm, I'm going to tell all this just to say this. I want to throw this in here because it, it has a lot of meaning toward the story later on. Roger Patterson and Bob Gimline made that famous ride in 1967. Yes. Their film was brought to light and you got to remember there wasn't no internet around then either. We had probably two TV channels out in the country. We was using a antenna that you had to physically go out there and turn the channel. Yeah, the, rab- the channel. rabbit ears. Oh, uh. you already know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, we're talking old school now. And, uh, <clears throat> so we didn't know of, what a Sasquatch was. We didn't know what a Bigfoot was or nothing. Nobody probably or possibly in the state of Mississippi at that time had ever heard either one of those terms. Right. Uh, I'll get back into that in a little bit, but in 1970 or 71, now I can pinpoint the first view because of the age of my sister at the given time due to the circumstances that occurred. This time, I couldn't per se. I do remember my sister was not in uh, school at that time. Back in those days, you didn't have nursery school. You didn't have to send them to a kindergarten. You went automatically to the first grade. And uh, she was not in school. So I'm placing this time frame either 70 or 71. And she was about five years of age. I was right at 10 or 11. Can't remember which. We was out in the back pasture during the springtime of the year. We was we each had a small mason jar and we was chasing lightning bugs in the cow pasture. And you know, uh like as I said earlier, we moved in with my grandfather who owned the property that was backed up to our original house where we I had this first sighting when I was six. And uh you know, to catch the lightning bugs, you got to go out in the evening. It's just right when the sun goes down. And in the south, during the cooler temperatures of the evening, is when snakes and things like that started crawling around a lot more. You know, yeah. they are lethargic from coming out of hibernation or whatever they go through, you know, during the cold winter months of the year. And my grandfather had come to the back porch and had called us to come in. I believe two times before what I'm going to tell you happened. And of course we ignored him because we was having a blast. We was doing kid things. We was chasing and squealing and hollering because we'd, we'd see a lightning bug and one would run over there and grab it for the other. And we were just seeing if who would catch the most lightning bugs or fireflies in those mason jars. You know, it was yeah. just a kid thing to do. I used to do that. And I remember doing that stuff. 
Oh, yes. In those days, don't we miss them? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, today is Xbox and PlayStation, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know it. But uh, the third time my grandfather come to the back porch, it was still enough ambient light outside to see what we were doing running around in that pasture. We was about, uh, I'd say, 50 yards from the house or possibly even 60. But to get from the house to where we was at, you had to run out a fence that was lined with uh, shrub bushes and had a, a little ditch running through it. So it, it wasn't a direct line. It, it, if you had to go to where we was at, you was going to have to make a sort of a detour. And to get to where we was at, you had to go around the tractor shed and so, and uh, a, a barbed wire fence to go through it. But anyhow, he had looked out, and he was getting ready to call us for the third time when he saw something to the far left of where he was looking. Where we was in relation to what he saw, it was to the west of us. And more like to our right, and I'll explain that to try to give everybody a picture of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> uh, he had seen something over there that didn't belong standing next to the western fence on that side of the property. Uh, it had some small cedar trees up and down that fence line where birds had, you know, rested on the fence line and, you know, nature, they took a crap and most it was cedar trees, you know, those cedar seeds and they'd drop yeah. them and what was happening was cedar trees was growing along that fence line and but this one cedar tree was moving <clears throat> and okay. there was no wind that night and he while he was watching i'm gonna tell his side of it first before i get in hours he saw this thing drop down on all fours and start loping towards me my brother and my sister oh man well here we was, uh, guesstimate probably was not 35, 40 yards from it. Actually, this thing was closer to us than my grandfather would, even having to navigate around that tractor shed. But the only thing he could do, he didn't have time to run the house, grab a gun or anything like that. He just bailed out the back porch and started running across the pasture Screaming and yelling. Uh-huh. Well, us three kids, our grandfather never acted like that. And, you know, here he done already a couple of times trying to corral us into the house. And now all of a sudden, Papa's going nuts, you know. That would have been the scariest part well, of it for me, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we stopped immediately what we was doing. I don't, and looked, it was, you know, it was kind of like a cartoon, you know, when you envision it after the fact, our heads all turned immediately to him because he had never yelled and started acting like that in our presence before. And what's wrong with granddaddy? <laughs> hmm. And we got to noticing that he was not looking directly at us. 
and he was throwing his arms up in the air and running. I never seen my grandfather run in my life. You know, I mean, this is a grandfather, right? But he was looking past us to our right, which was his left, past where we was staring at. And there we go with the cartoon moment once again. I can vaguely remember all three of our heads swiveling to look to our right to see what he was looking at. And coming towards us at a slow lope on all fours, it was leading with its left arm, just like your average great ape like a gorilla or orangutan yeah, yeah. was this hairy monster we you know this is the second time i've seen one pretty good you know but this one wasn't leaning over a barbed wire fence this one was loping towards us. and uh i think i'd crap my well, pants if i saw that well <laughs> there's the uh, this is all bank split second activity this is what happened again there goes my brother drops the mason jar i bet before it even hit the ground he was five yards gone he almost knocked my grandfather down to get to the house uh he he met my grandfather when my grandfather was coming around the tractor shed my sister's legs melted clean out from under her and she hit the ground and started screaming hysterically Oh, man. I'm sitting there, standing there. Every bone in my body is quivering. All I had in mind was, I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. I can't leave my sister. I can't leave my sister. I can't leave my sister. I was caught in that indecisive moment at 10 or 11 years of age. Uh, Now, I wasn't frozen in spot because I wanted to go. But I also didn't want to abandon my sister, you know, because she had done melted. I mean, she, her legs were just like water. They just fell out from under and she hit the ground and started crying and screaming hysterically. This thing would have reached me and my sister way before my granddaddy got there. And here's, here's the deal that gets me. Even though my grandfather was screaming and raising cane to get this thing's attention, it was so focused on us kids, it did not pay him any attention. I mean, it caught me and my brother and sister's attention quick when my grandfather started that. But this thing was so focused on us that we had no clue uh, that, you know, this thing was ignoring my grandfather but it was focused on us. It sounds like your grandfather Um, was trying to like, he was trying to like scare off. Like, like, I guess this is all he would know is like a dog or like a, or like even like a mountain lion or something like that. You know, that's absolutely what he was doing. Uh, He was trying to distract it to get to us or get between us and it before it got there. But he knew that there was no way he could do that. And uh, he already knew he couldn't jump that fence in the direct line and hit that ditch and get there quicker. So he was smart enough to figure he had to take the least path of resistance, which was around the tractor shed. And uh, it's a good thing he did. Uh, But when my grandfather came within this thing's sight view, it started applying the brakes real slowly. 
it turned its head from looking at us to focusing on him. And all the time I was standing there between it and my sister, I was watching its face. I was watching its facial expression. And this thing went from like it wanted to play with us, which that's what I like to think that that's what was going on because I really till this day don't have a clue what its intentions was. It When it saw my grandfather, it started focusing on him and it was like you pulled the window shade down and it was almost like it was embarrassed. I mean, that's the kind of look it had. And it slowly stood up as erect as it could. Mm. I've learned over the years from the ones I've researched, investigated, these things cannot stand fully erect with their knees, with their knees locked like humans. They kind of in kind of a crouch type position. At so it's, all it's more like a chimpanzee. They can't, they can't hold that. Chimpanzees can right. walk for a limited distance on all on bipedally, but oh. most of the time they can't, right. they can't. Yeah. Yeah, when they're in a quadrupedal motion, you know, and I can explain all that, too, if we go into all that, because I've learned over the years a lot of things about this thing. And uh, it stood as erect as it could. When it did, it was definitely a male. Uh, It looked like it had scabs, like its hair was uh, falling out, just like a dog loses its hair or a horse in the springtime of the year, getting rid of its winter coat. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah. Actually, I claimed it as a mange type appearance around its knees within its midriff area in the crook of its elbows and all along the upper chest of, and it had a look of just like total embarrassment, like oops, I made a mistake. Well, when it stopped and was watching my grandfather, my grandfather immediately runs up there to where me and my sister are, and he picks her up. Of course, she jumps in his arms and is clinging to him. And, you know, here I am right there, and he grabs me, and he kind of pushes me behind him. Talk about my granddaddy. This thing then, just slowly, without taking its eyes off of my granddaddy, walks bipedally on two legs to the north, never taking its eyes off of us until it receded into the cedar and pine trees on the north side. Whoa. So do you do you feel that this creature was trying to maybe it just wanted to play? Or do you feel that it was a that's threat? The, that's the impression I got. Yeah. I think what happened and you know, here I go again. I hate repeat myself, but I, I like trying to explain things to the listening audience to make them more understandable about the situation. A lot of people say I can paint good pictures with my stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing looked like, and I've realized over the years that they are attracted to the higher pitch voices of children playing. Okay. I mean, when they're squealing or cutting up and making all kind of noises, this thing loves to watch children play. And I think, and also by, you know, from years since, I know that this thing was more like a 
juvenile type instead of one that was a full-blown uh, mature male. Yeah, it wasn't an adult. Well, let me ask you right. this. Let me ask you this, Jim. Uh, I want to ask you about your investigations and what it is that you do. And like, what kind of techniques, uh, like what kind of equipment do you guys use whenever you go out to investigate? Can you tell us a little bit of that. Well, oh yeah, we. One thing I want to add to that real quick to make everything understandable from your original question. After this incident occurred, I was older. My brother was older. My sister, of course, you know she. This really affected her. I mean, uh, she had problem. She had problems sleeping at night, bed wetting the whole nine yards uh, due to this incident. And she, it's not that she blocked it out of her mind. She don't want to talk about it even till this day. And uh, and I don't blame her. But my grandfather finally came clean with me and my brother, and he said. I, I remember us talking and I, I said, granddaddy, what was that? And he said, that is a booger. And see, that's what I grew up calling these things my whole life. That's why I uh, mentioned the Roger Patterson Gimland deal with Sasquatch and Bigfoot because we didn't know what a Sasquatch Bigfoot was, Bigfoot was, but we knew what a booger was. Right. And, uh, my grandfather came clean, and that's when he told us the story about when he was courting my grandmother in the 30s. And he would ride through the woods on one of the plow mules to court my grandmother only on Sundays. Because he'd work in the cotton fields all summer, but on Sundays was the only day they would have off. And he met my grandmother, well, his future wife, at a revival camp meeting that they'd always have in the South. And, uh, so he started courting her and he had ride through, uh, five miles of woods between his place and our place on this old plow mule that he had. Well, one day, uh, I guess it was in August. It had to be August or September because they was picking cotton and, you know, cotton does not bowl out until that time of the year. Yeah. And he, he was basically wore out, and they had went to church together that Sunday morning and <clears throat> had a big Sunday dinner. You know, that's popular in the South, you know, uh, maybe making people nostalgic. I hope I am <laughs> for the good old days. But <laughs> uh, they had a big porch swing on the front porch and, you know, a big uh, – uh, we called it a dog trot house with, uh, the kitchen would be on one side and the, uh, sleeping quarters on the other side where the wind would always blow through the porch. Well, he got lazy and went to sleep in that porch swing and my, uh, future grandmother let him sleep because she felt bad about him being tired and wore out. Well, before you know it, it was later him leaving there than he usually does. And he realized that he was going to be riding through them same woods that I'm talking about uh, in the dark. Okay. And uh, my great-great-grandfather allowed him to borrow his carbine light that you attach to your hat. You know, we're not talking about spotlights now. We're talking about you got to light a candle and put it in this darn carbine light 
and they'd use it for coon hunting. We call it, you know, we call it coon hunting, but it's raccoon hunting, you know. And uh, he allowed him to use that light so he could get back home because they realized it was going to be dark before he got home. Well, halfway home through one of those big hollows, there was two hollows that was huge between my grandmother's house and my granddaddy's house at the time. Something behind his mule started screaming and pacing him. And that mule was so docile, my granddaddy said that was why he always rode that mule because they had a hard enough time trying to get him to G when, you know, they was plowing the field with him. But this thing screamed at him and the mule, and he said he's never seen that mule run that fast in his whole life. So he already knew of these things since the 30s. And he already knew that they were on the property. So that's when he came clean with me and my brother about what a booger was. And he told us that these things were on the property. My grandfather was the one that taught me and my brother how to hunt. You know, we never had a father around. And he was a heck of a good hunter. But one thing he always told us about, he said, if you're going to be a good hunter, you need to learn what you honey talking about deer or turkey or raccoon or whatever we decide to go out and hunt. Yeah. You just Rabbit, can't, you just squirrel. can't shoot at it. You just, it's a, right. Uh, there's an art to habits. it. Yeah. Right. Learn its habits, learn its vocalizations or calls, learn what stages those vocalizations and calls mean. You know, it's time to eat, it's time to go to bed, it's time he's agitated, whatever, so forth and so on. That's when we started, you know, late of an evening, we could hear these things on top of the hill vocalizing. And my grandfather would point it out to me and my brother. He said, that's a booger up there on that hill. And so we started taking notice of this. (laughs) Wow. And, uh. I mean, it was like a living experiment, only we was living it, you know. Uh, And we started learning about these things. We would learn when we hear them vocalize up there on the hill, we'd hear another one reply. But they would only reply to certain vocalizations. And then the reply was always almost directly the same type reply. Not as the vocalizations, but in response to it. And we got to putting these things together. So here we go grunting at deer, you know, during deer season. Cause we didn't have a home. We didn't know what a snort box was. We were snorting, you know, vocally. And, yeah. you know, that's like when you turkey hunting or calling in owls to locate a turkey on a roost every evening. We learned the calls that would get responses from whatever we were doing. So, you know, this field experiment was pretty cool for us. Uh, and uh, we was hearing these things up on the hill, so we just started imitating them. And we started learning how to get responses from these calls. <clears throat> and we have, when I got older and got my driver's license in 1975, that was back in the day where when you were 15 years old, you can get your driver's license, you know. Hmm. That opened up the whole world for me. Because mainly, you know, I wasn't... You know, I cared about girls at the time, but I was old country boy, and I was hunting. Either I was hunting or fishing, doing, right. you know. And, and when I got my driver's license, I was hitting the woods, baby. I mean, yeah. I was tearing them up. 
And this is new territory. I was kind of like Davy Crockett from up there in, ter- in Tennessee. You know, I want to know what's over the next hill. And I'd be hunting in various locations because a lot of people knew me. And I, I have a lot of kin folk that own a lot of property all over five counties. And uh, I would chomp at the bit to go to these different locations to hunt. But also while I was there, nobody else was around. I'd experiment with these calls, and I found out, hey, these darn things are all over the place. You know, they wasn't just on my granddaddy's property. They was all over, you know, and because I would do these calls, and these things would answer back, and uh, I got to where me and my brother, <coughs> we could see these things when they would hide from us in the woods because we knew what to look for. We learned to watch for them out of the peripheral vision of our eye instead of looking directly at them because you can see more movement out of your peripheral vision than you ever could looking straight on at something. You guys probably already know this, yeah. you know, through hunting or whatever. And uh, we we learned a lot from my granddad, and that was the best blessing we could have ever had in regard to learning about a booger. I'll tell you one more funny thing, and then we'll get deeper into your original question. In 1972, my mother had remarried, and we moved to a big city, Greenville, Mississippi. Okay. (laughs) Learned what a matinee Saturday afternoon cinema was. (laughs) They was having this, yeah. (laughs) They was having this double feature matinee on a, I, I bet you guys can vaguely remember. I don't know how old you gentlemen are, but well, I'm they nearly, used to have the I'm nearly forty, so I'm nearly forty. Okay, okay. Well, back in the seventies, on these matinee double features, instead of us watching Roy Rogers and all that like everybody else did, you know, uh, they were showing these nature films. You know, it was about an hour and a half long, maybe eighty minutes, ninety minutes long, and they'd always have a feature in front of it. And they had this feature it in front of it called, uh, I think it was something like uh, In Search of, but it wasn't uh, Elite, uh, what's his name, Leonard Nimoy, the one from Star Trek. I think it this was, probably was the one with Rod Serling, I think is what you're thinking yeah, of. That's yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. It, it was the one that introduced the 25-minute clip with Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. Yeah. And we're sitting here watching this thing, me and my brother. I'll never forget it. We were sitting there in that theater, and they was talking about this thing called a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot, but they never would show it, you know, until it got about 18 minutes into the film. And uh, we were really wasn't paying that much attention to the uh, commentary and so forth and so on because, you know, but we, we were waiting on the main feature. But all of a sudden, that famous 58-second clip popped up there of this bigfoot Sasquatch walking across Bluff Creek in California. I'll never forget, me and my brother turned around, looked dead at each other and said, that ain't no Sasquatch, that ain't no Bigfoot, that's a booger. <laughs> and like and, for you, it was you know, nothing unusual. And for your grandfather, it was nothing, it was nothing unusual. Right, yeah. right. You and, grew up and, with and, this. You know, yes, and I'm glad that you guys recognize this because yeah. that's very important. Uh, I've run into so many people, especially in the 80s, because when I got my driver's license, I was not only hunting, 
once you see one of these things, you're looking for your next one the rest of your life. Yeah. <clears throat> Due to the living experiment that we had on our farm, these things were there, you know, and we was given a better opportunity than your average person because not only did we know they was there, we didn't have somebody looking at us saying we was crazy for what we saw because here my grandfather was a kindred spirit. He already knew they was there. And, you know, that's very important, you know, because a lot of people, when they mention this thing, especially in the 80s, would say, there's no such thing as a Sasquatch or Bigfoot in the South. They're only up there in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm sitting there saying, wait a minute, Hoss, you know, (laughs) I can't prove this to you, but I know what I've seen. But that's that's the big question, life. Jim, is that is there's so much of a focus in the Pacific Northwest that people don't think about how many there, – there's so many sightings just here in our part of the country in the south and the eastern part of the United oh, States. Yeah. Well, not just across America, oh, yeah. but pretty much any region in the world. Yeah. Go, there's some sort of you know legend or a name for this type of thing. Right. Well, point, well when I got into the internet, Bigfoot, in the 2000s, I mean, we would get into arguments with people from the Pacific Northwest because it was almost like, hey, we own this thing. Y'all are seeing something else. You know what I'm saying? And that just brought up the things that we went through in the 80s because it didn't take us long to recognize, keep your mouth shut about this because you're going to be ridiculed, you're going to be laughed at, and they're going to think you crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't take long at all to recognize what you could talk about and what you couldn't. And actually, that was a shame at that point in time. But see, that's all part of building character, you know. And uh, we knew what we were seeing. We knew what we was dealing with. We knew what we was hearing. We knew everything. I could go, uh, I could keep you guys here for hours just telling what happened while we was on the farm, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, in the eighties, when I first got married, I would hunt basically the Northern half of Mississippi and take opportunities to go other places to hunt. But every time I'd go somewhere to hunt and especially into a strange place like the Mississippi Delta or Tennessee parts up there in Tennessee or go to Alabama or Arkansas or whatever, I'd be off by myself and I'd just say, huh. Well, let me make this call and see what happens. And I would guesstimate about 85% of the time, something would always respond because you get a response like I said back. earlier, right? Yeah. Like I said earlier, we've been hearing these things all our life and we didn't have playstations. We never stayed in the house. When we got in from school, we was out in the yard. We was playing outside. We had horses. We had cattle. I mean, we was dirt poor, but I was one of only kid in the classroom that owned three horses of my own and you know this wasn't counting what my brother had and my everybody else did in the family and everybody wanted to ride our horses you know and uh but we was rich but we was poor you couldn't have never told us that and uh in the 80s when i started noticing that these things were more proliferate across the south than what the people in the, at that point in time, Pacific Northwest was trying to force this on everybody that no, we only got them up here in Pacific Northwest. 
Well, I got older enough that I started getting those Saga, S-A-G-A, uh, magazines. And that's when I started hearing of these things like Moo Moo or Momo up in Missouri. Yeah. <clears throat> the Grassman in Ohio. The, the Skunk and Ape in Florida. Skunk Ape in Florida. Uh, and it's not only Florida. It's in Louisiana and southern Mississippi, only they don't call him Skunk Ape. They call him Swamp Apes. Right. And that that's another term. Uh, I've actually been <clears throat> in the 90s to uh, work down at Sandy Hook, which is off the Pearl River, going into Honey Island Swamp. And everybody's heard of the Honey Island Swamp Monster, you know. And then all of a sudden, this movie comes out about the legend of Boggy Creek in Folk, Arkansas. I could relate more to that one. Because all of a sudden, it goes from these things only in the Pacific Northwest to what in the heck is in Texarkana, Arkansas, or Folk, Arkansas, or Falk, or however they say it. Uh, <clears throat> listening to that those Crabtree guys in that Legend of Boggy Creek, and me and my brother, we thought that was the most hilarious film. It was scaring the heck out of everybody back in the 70s, <laughs> uh, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> We sit in here and say, well, heck, that's nothing but a booger. We deal with that all the time. <laughs> Most of, I think the main discrepancy I've ever heard between, like, say, the uh, Northwest Sasquatch and then the Skunk Ape, Swamp Ape type of thing is that um, around the Texarkana area, it seems to be more of a, an aggressive, uh, more of a thing to be feared. Well, wouldn't you be feared if you got redneck shooting at you all the time? <laughs> Now, what do we do in the South? Come on, volunteer guys. Let's talk. What does your average country boy do when he sees something that he don't know what it is and he's holding a gun 90% of the time? At least fire in the air. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'd be mad, too. And it's not only that. (laughs) Take uh, 100 degree, I mean, 90 degree weather with 120% humidity. I mean, good, great. I mean, <laughs> that's just a theory now, but think about it. No, that was, yeah, that was great. Yeah, you know, uh, I could go on and on about this. I mean, you putting up with the heat, you putting up with uh, people shooting at you. And throughout my years of research, I've mainly done most of mine in the Deep South. I've done a lot of research in the state of Texas. I've done a lot of research in <laughs> Oklahoma. Actually, I lived out in northwest Oklahoma and researched with various native tribes in relation to a booger, you know, and they had all, each various tribe would have their own name description of what this is. That's another reason why I don't like the word Sasquatch because it is, it is, and I I don't mean to be insulting when I say this, it's a bastardization of the word Sasquatch from the Salish Indian, Indian nation up there in Oregon and Washington. And, you know, that's what the natives up in the Pacific Northwest called this thing. And it got popular over the years. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, the term Bigfoot actually come in 1958 when a logging outfit uh, uh, operated and run by a man named Jerry Cruz found these big foot print tracks 
all around their logging site where they would park their equipment overnight. And they'd come back the next day, and there was all these big footprint tracks. Well, the term, when the news media got a hold of it, I think it was Sacramento, a uh, newspaper out of Sacramento. I may be wrong to say it that way. Termed it Bigfoot Tracks Found. That's where the term Bigfoot come from. And here we go again. When you order outside lights in the south for your front or backyard when you live in the country, and you don't know how to describe halogen lights or whatever, vapor lights, you would call the utility people and say, hey, come out here and install two booger lights in my yard. Yeah, fix this booger for me. Uh, yeah. I never heard that expression. Well, how many times have you heard in the South, you guys better come on in for the booger man get you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, and I'm not being insulting here. I, I love picking at people, especially regional people, because they all make fun of us Southerners and our slow Southern drawl. Anyway, <laughs> I call them Yankees. You know, they call them Boogie men, boogie men. I said, uh-uh, that's a booger man. <laughs> you you and, know, uh, uh, so we're dealing with we're dealing with a phenomenon. We're dealing with a, cre- a potential creature that is everywhere in the United States and possibly even, what about Canada and Mexico? Do you think that they could? Oh, the, yes, the Canada, down definitely there? for sure. Yeah. Uh, I also think, uh, you know, Canada is one of the, especially the western part, of Canada, say from Minnesota West, yeah. is one of the most least un, uh, explored areas in the country because it's in uninhabitable. You know, you got all these mosquitoes and these bogs and all this wetland and swamps and everything up there. I think they're probably more prolific, prolific in that part of the North American hemisphere than they are anywhere else because, well, you know, because and, there's so less people and it's unexplored. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's yeah, that's one thing yeah. that people are going to uh, – a skeptic would say. Oh, well, yeah. I'll, I'll give you oh, two yeah. things a skeptic would say. A skeptic would say you – we we in the, the southeastern United States, they say that it is so urbanized and, and, and it's yep. so suburbanized. But people don't realize just how many woods there are and just how wooded well, the, the, the eastern United States still woods. is. It's not just the woods, Hoss. When yeah. the humidity in the south slips up through the Gulf Stream, it always comes around from Galveston, Texas, makes a big curve about just north of Kentucky. Anything in that little bitty umbrella that's in a southeast direction gets humidity. When you get humidity, oh, start it. thinking tropical jungle. I mean, really, think about this. Yeah. Uh, all the underbrush becomes almost basically a tropical jungle. And then think of the curse of the kudzu that was uh, added to the south in the 40s for irrigation purposes. Oh, yeah. Kudzu did not help the image of us not being a jungle one lick. No, no, it didn't. (laughs) Yep. But uh, these things are more numerous than people want to believe. Plenty and, of places uh, to hide if they they need to. Oh, man. There's no doubt about it. We found... 
you know, they're getting to where they're now eradicating a lot of the kudzu, but there's still kudzu out there, you know, in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, you know, there's places out there that still has kudzu, you know, because it grows eight inches a day. And oh, we see it we all learned, the time. Oh, yes. We learned in Mississippi that you can actually grab a swath of those vines and pick it up and look under it to a certain degree. And do you know it's cooler up under there? Do you know it's moisture-ridden up under there? And guess what else? It makes a heck of a hidey hole during the daytime. Yep. That's a good point, Jim. That's a real good point. Yeah. Another thing in regard to uh, southern Bigfoot compared to other parts of the country is you got to look at the statistics. This world now is a 24-7 day a week, 24-hour driven world. Think about up until the mid-80s and especially in the 90s, when factories and things of this such, heck, they would always close down at dark. You know, I made the reference earlier to I come from a one-horse town that rolled up the sidewalks at, you know, when it turned dark in the evening. Yeah. Now you've got people that are on the highways at all hours of the night. These people live in the country because they got smart, didn't want to pay city taxes or So they would move out into the county. The ones that would move out into the county mainly are people who were raised in cities. These are the ones that want to pet bobcats and cougars and bears and become friends with them because of Walt Disney and all these movies back in the years. And, uh, I mean, they never had any practical sense in regard to leave it the heck alone. That thing bites. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, all these, I call it the baby boomer generation, which I'm part of that too. Only I was a country boy brought up that way. Uh, they move out to the country, build them a home. And next thing you know, they're hearing all kind of strange things. And I'm not saying what they're hearing is Bigfoot or boogers per se, but they're hearing things they've never heard before. They can't differentiate between what is a fox uh, calling. And I tell you what, if you've never heard a fox yell at night, it will make the hair stand up on the back of your head. And, you know, uh, you guys may already know what I'm talking about here. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bobcats are some of the scariest things I've ever heard in my life. Well, I want to tell you this. You guys have probably heard this due to the type show that you do. Uh, you've heard of the panther screaming like a woman being beat to death. I bet you both have heard that phrase before, right? Yeah, we've heard that, yeah. Okay. When you see a cougar, a puma, or a mountain lion on TV, and it shows it squalling or making its call, that is not the call that is being described as, oh, that's just a panther because it sounds like a woman screaming. Yeah. What they're accidentally doing is hearing nine times out of ten a Bigfoot, but they are associating it with what they have been told all their life 
a panther makes a scream like a woman screaming. Now, how many TV shows, or if you've been to the zoo or whatever, have you heard a, pan- a panther or a puma or a cougar or a mountain lion scream or holler? It's like a It ain't a woman scream. That's, yeah, that's, it, that's it, really it interesting that a- you bring that up. When I was... Uh, I was in my 20s. I lived in an old farmhouse out in, it was like a swampy area. And the only time I've heard that noise is when I lived out there. And I remember thinking, okay, I've heard that that's what a cougar sounds like. It sounded like a witch cackling or something, but super loud and terrifying. <laughs> but that's See, the only time, that's the only time I've heard you. that noise, though. Well, think about it. I've already helped you, and I'm just an ignorant old country boy come on the show. <laughs> Rob, you may have actually have had <clears throat> That's an true. encounter with Bigfoot, my friend. That's awesome. And you yeah. didn't even know it. Well, think about it. I mean, what you hear and see on TV, and I mean, you can even go to sound bites on the internet, and it sounds nothing like a woman screaming. I mean, I bet there's going to be people. I got to remember to do this when the show's up there. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's get into Jim. I want to talk about the dark side of this. And uh, okay. I heard you on Darkness Radio a few months ago talking to Dave Schrader about all this. And this was some yep. interesting stuff. You know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with David Polites and his missing 411 oh, yes. books. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, oh, you yeah. know, Pilates is a Bigfoot researcher, but he doesn't really, he doesn't really say that the he he keeps the disappearance and stuff and his Bigfoot research separate. Well, but he, there's some people found, that think he's found a money niche here, and uh, I'm not putting the man down. I got you. I mean, I'm not putting him down. Yeah, he's selling Please. these books because it's interesting stuff. Well, I would sell the heck out of them too if everybody's yeah. pieing them. You know what I mean? And right. the more you can point in a certain given direction and leave the listener or the reader to come up with their own theories toward it. I mean, he's actually not saying that it's a Bigfoot, but he's leaving the impression that it could be. And, you know, I'm not putting the gentleman down at all. I promise you, I'm not. I yeah, mean, he talks. All listeners. He, ta- he talks a lot about disappearances, but some of the oh, yeah. things that I heard you speak about was more, I mean, they find the body, that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were, you know, due to time restraints and commercials on that show, we was laughing, you know, just like we did before I came onto the air live with you. We sat here, me, you, and Rob sat here and was talking about, yeah. uh, you know, what we're going to discuss. And, uh, I, they said, you know, maybe you're going to have two hours and you'll have plenty of time to tell of these things. I said, uh, they thought I was joking. I was not. They, I said, man, two hours is not near enough. And they both started laughing. And I said, I'm serious. I mean, I know of things that have occurred through other people that I've researched and investigated things that I could keep you guys here for six hours, you know, and they said, wait a minute. You well, know, let's, uh, let's do at least, we, <laughs> uh, at least if, like 10 minutes to give us at least a good story about that, because this is an aspect that people don't, well, you don't hear much about. And it's, it's, it's frightening really. Well, it is, it is. Uh, these things are very opportunistic animals and that's what they are. 
I am. I know that they are of flesh and blood. I know that they are mammals. I know that if they are classified as a primate, it's only because they are more like a gorilla, ape, slash chimpanzee, slash orangutan. I think this is the North American continent's ape or monkey. I really believe this. I mean, think of all the continents in the world, even South America. Every continent has its own monkey or ape, except possibly England, Great Britain, Europe, over in that area. But then I don't do that part of the country. You've got researchers that do. Uh, If you buy into the Bering Sea crossing, you're going to tell me all these apes that are found in South America just bypassed all the North American continent, even went down there through that little narrow gap at Panama just to get to South America and conveniently leave North America behind. (laughs) All right. Uh, They're opportunistic in regard that they fear man for whatever reason. And I think this goes over generations. I honestly think it goes further back than before the Europeans crossed onto the continent, including probably the Vikings, which, you know, I'm of the theory because they find so many strange things from the Vikings in this continent. Let's put it this way. I don't think Columbus discovered America. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've talked about this on the show for sure. Yeah. Bit, yeah. Oh yeah. But, uh, these things have been around all this time. I can get into that aspect of, it, but I'd rather not. Cause you want to get into the dark side. Yeah. We have, you the know, they found these, yeah, they found these bodies in these burial mounds in the South. Uh, the Smithsonian recovered all these bodies in 1874 through 78 or that period in time. And they have conveniently disappeared even from records, but, uh, getting back to the dark side, uh, incident in Kentucky. I've never told this on our radio show. I haven't had the opportunity yet. Uh, Exclusive, exclusive, yeah, sir. Exclusive. Oh yeah, Yeah. I'm gonna give y'all an exclusive. (laughs) (laughs) Happened outside the Davy Crockett National Forest up there in Kentucky. Probably what is that northeast of you guys across the Cumberland River when you get into Kentucky over in that area? Am I right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen, that is now works for the FBI based out of New Orleans. That's all I'm going to say because I don't want to jeopardize his job. Uh, First, before I get into this deal, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I do know that the government knows of these things uh, for whatever reasons, and I could go into that for a while too. They want it to remain unknown or it don't exist. They will cover up things. Uh, most bodies that came about because of this were always closed casket or they had been cremated for reasons that are tough to explain. A lot of them are being called bear attacks, but the body was sort 
so uh, tore up that they didn't want to expose it for the family, so forth, so on. I mean, I'm going and through all that just to get to the story. This gentleman and his wife were a member of a hunting lease up there on the edge of the David Crockett National Forest. I don't know exactly where it's at. Uh, the husband had to work that week. His wife was an avid hunter with him. Uh, his wife and his, uh, brother-in-law of uh, the wife's brother went to the deer lease before him because he had to work. Well, he had just bought a brand new, uh, 300 Winchester Magnum rifle that okay. he needed to sight in before he actually went hunting. So he told his wife and his brother-in-law that I will be at the deer lease after lunch on Friday, but I'm going to the bluff to sight in my brand new rifle. I haven't had a chance to shoot it, and I don't want to go in the woods and wound an animal because I don't know where the bullet went. Yeah. Uh, brand new scope, whole nine yards. The bluff was a hillside that had been cut into by bulldozers and drag lines to tear the dirt out of it to put in on landfills or whatever reasons but it left a big cut almost straight up and down and what they do they put their targets on this bluff and then back off and stand and shoot at whatever designated distance they wanted to shoot to sight in their rifles uh Everything that I am going to tell is uh, not conjecture, but it was figured out from tracks and other things because the story itself tells its own story once I finish explaining what happened. Okay. I'm going to give you the gist of it from the brother-in-law who saw all this after the fact, but they were smart enough they kept the wife away from that location. Uh, it had rained, if I'm not mistaken, either Wednesday or Thursday before this happened and the ground being totally dirt with no grass was kind of spongy and left good tracks. They seen where he had pulled in to the bluff to sight in his gun. They found his footprints walking to the bluff itself to set up his target, which the target was still there. He then walks back to his vehicle, which was beside him. He actually probably used the uh, back end of his truck as a prop to keep his rifle steady when he was shooting to sight it in. The wife and the brother-in-law heard him shooting from that direction, and being that it was a Friday, the crowd comes in on Saturday, and they was the only ones up there hunting at the time. They was actually on deer stand, and they heard him when he started shooting from that direction, and they knew it was him. So they didn't think nothing else about it. They'd see sure. him later on when they gathered back at the clubhouse that evening. Okay. Now we're going from that to other things. They f Here's the story. The man was shooting, and he saw something at the very top of that bluff overlooking the target because the tracks were there. I'm saying something. They were big tracks. I'm guesstimating now because it's been so long since I told the story. They was at least 
16 to 17 inches long and something like eight to nine inches wide. This thing had crouched on the edge of that bluff looking down at this gentleman while he was sighting in his rifle. Somehow he saw it. For whatever reason, who knows, he evidently shot at this thing and hit it because there was blood found at the top of that bluff. Really? When he did that, they was able to follow his footprints to the right side of that bluff, and there he goes up the hill. Now the trail is not as defined because he's in leaf foliage from all the trees that were on the side of that bluff going back on top of that hill. And, but they got the, the investigators and everything got to the top of that bluff, found the blood at the top, found the disturbed leaves and everything. Then it went straight back from that bluff, whatever he had shot along the ridge. And that's where they found his brand new 300 wind mag wrapped around a tree. It has busted the stock and the forearm of that rifle. It was, you know, forearm and the stock was made out of wood with such force that the barrel was bent. Now, now I'm not talking in a U shape. I'm just talking bent. Bent somewhat. Yeah. Right. Something had with incredible strength had taken it and just slammed it into the side of a tree. Whoa. Then here's how they found the body. That night, when the wife and the brother-in-law come back to the deer camp, the husband never showed up. Well, if he ain't here in 30 more minutes, I'm going to go check out and see where he's at. Wife was cooking dinner, what Yankees call it. We call it supper down here. And uh, he drove to where the bluff was, and there was the gentleman's truck with the doors closed, just sitting there. He looks around. He don't see his uh, brother-in-law anywhere. So he walks up to the truck to see if he was in the truck, may have had a heart attack or per se, whatever. He gets to the truck and finds his brother-in-law in the cab of the truck, but... Instead of sitting in the cab of the truck like me and you do with our knees forward, our face forward, whatever crammed him into the cab of that truck crammed him in there backwards. Jeez. His back was to the front windshield. His head had been twisted all the way around, broken. His knees were broken and his pelvis was bent to fit underneath the steering column of the steering wheel. Jesus. Uh, That does not sound like a bear attack. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the story before the local law enforcement got involved. 
He found his brother-in-law in this condition. He sees the shape of the body, the whole nine yards. First thing he does, evidently had enough country boy in him. You know, what in the heck done this? So he grabs his little flashlight. You know, all those good old boys have our spotlights and red lights and uh, flashlights in our vehicles. And he goes, start looking at tracks all around this truck are these large Bigfoot tracks. It was more than one. They was of different sizes. The weight of these things had compressed the soft, spongy ground, something like an inch and a half to two inches, whereas all a footprint with a boot was making from an average 250-pound man was maybe a half an inch. But, you know, you, that you would pick up these the mud when you was walking in there. That's how soft the ground was. Well, all around the cab of this truck were these tracks. He followed the tracks all the way to the right side of that bluff. Whatever happened, that's when he decided to go back to the deer camp and call the uh, local uh, sheriff's department because you call, you know, the deputy. It's a county miner. Calls the local police department. Please come in there. Yellow tape off the whole area. That's when everything gets shady. Then he goes back to the area. Tells them who he is. Of course, by this time, the body has been taken from the site. They are now looking in the woods with these spotlights and flashlights, following this trail of partial mud and tracks from where it come off that bluff. And then until this thing, these things had walked up that hill, you know, their feet were still leaving partial mud that was dropping off their footprints. They get to the top of the hill and that's when they find the rifle in the whole nine yards. Conjecture is he shot one. He went to see what he had shot. He got ambushed. They bent the gun around the tree, busted the stock. Probably then at that point in time, killed the man. Then they took him bodily down that hill and crammed him into the cab of his truck and shut the door. See, that would require some kind of intelligence because a bear would just mangle you and just leave you there. I mean, they wouldn't carry you back to the... To the tr- to the no, truck so they, and cram you into it. That's crazy. The incident was written off as bear attack. The body was not allowed. It went straight to the crime. Uh, what is it when a murder occurs or something or uh, homicide? What it right? Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, the investigation is probably still in the book somewhere. They they just told the wife and the surviving family members that it was a bear attack. Hey, of uh, course, the brother-in-law sees the tracks. The brother-in-law follows the tracks. This ain't no bear. <laughs> Jim, did they I'm ta- not laughing at the person. I'm just laughing at the gullibility of how simple things can right. go from being one thing to being what we're told is something. Cause else. if an official tells you, then that must be what it is. Let me, I want to ask well, you this about the, about the case. Do you know if that blood was ever tested? 
have no clue. Yeah. Probably nope. not if they just decided just to say it was a bear attack. It, right. Uh, and here's another story I wanted I, I wanted to ahead. ask you. Uh, well, go ahead and finish your point on that. Well, what I was going to say was I'm not naive. I mean, I don't want to bring a body in to prove to the government that, look, y'all been pulling our leg all this time. I know what the government has out there. We are allowed, you mentioned earlier, what kind of equipment do we use? We use Generation 3 night vision. Uh, That is the strongest night vision that the market or the government will allow you to buy. The government, what I've heard, and this was back in 2007, 2008, when I really was getting into that part of the deal, was that the government in 2007 or 8 had advanced to a Gen 8 or Gen 9. I've heard just recently, which I can't confirm this, that even now they're as high as Gen 12. And see, this all adds thermal and all kind of uh, temperature and everything else to give our combat troops the very best out there. We know that we can use Gen 3, which is a heck of a lot better than if, you know, a lot of people want to save money. So they'll go by Generation 1 or Generation 2 if they're lucky, because the more you go up in the levels, the more money you're going to pass to purchase it. And uh, we have two Generation 3 Nightscope Visions that we use, and they work excellent for us. And we can see them through our Gen 3 night vision. We do have thermal. We have, uh, we started out, this is how far along we've been doing this, uh, what I call the Bigfoot Outlaws. That's uh, the group that I'm in. And, you know, we've got right at 20 members from all over the United States, but predominantly from the South. Cool. And most of our members, grew up in almost the same circumstances that I personally did. When, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we do a radio show and you can find it. All you have to do, and this is a plug for us, go to Google or any search engine and type in for YouTube, Bigfoot Outlaw Radio, and you'll find all of our shows there. But we've been doing this as a group together since 1999. Uh, that's when all of us met through the internet and, uh, we're one of the oldest groups out there. I know that everybody's heard of the BFRO and the GCPRO and several other people, but we're, we're a very small group that just totally believes in no kill. We don't want to kill one. We already know they're out there. Why do we have to prove it to anybody? We also know that if we did ever get lucky enough to kill one because that in and of itself is a very dangerous proposition because these things come in pairs or threes or fours or five. You may see one, but the one you don't see is the one you need to worry about. It's kind of like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park. Oh, yes. Actually, there's a funny story about that one, too, but I've been doing this for years, man, and uh, there's stories I've forgotten more than I can remember. Well, here's We run into a... Go. We run into a situation at Land Between the Lakes up there, 
that well, was close to us, man. To, yeah, almost identical to that same scene in Jurassic Park where the Velociraptors are running through the tall cane, only up there is sage grass. And we, 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 we was on a tall hill on the, uh, uh, Kentucky Lakeside, which is the Tennessee Riverside, where this occurred, at night, we had made our calls, and these things started coming through that tall uh, four or five foot sage grass, just like Velociraptors. <laughs> you can see them. Interesting. Uh, that oh, makes for man, interesting. Uh, uh, interesting <laughs> picture of my mind there, Jim. One of the things I wanted to ask you about. And this was also in your in your interview, and uh, this was very intriguing. And I think it shocked a lot of people when you said it. Was this the horses and the braiding? Right. Well, a lot of people they they have gotten so they heard the definition, and see that's how we found out about it was through horses. But these things are also sexually molesting uh heifer cows a heifer is a female cow okay uh <clears throat> what you have you have a family unit that has what we call a alpha male he's the big boy he's earned the right to breed with all the females that he can keep up with and control in a certain in yeah. a small area. This is what the Just great because, apes do. Chimpanzees, right, orangutans, right. and, and right. gorillas, they do well, the same thing. Yeah, on the perimeter, you have all these sexually frustrated males who don't uh, want to challenge him for whatever reasons, or they're not big enough to challenge him. And they are very sexually active too, but they're frustrated. They're sitting here smelling and watching and seeing all these things going on. And it just is it's sexually frustrating for them. And they, if you'll go through any report, and I, I've got to give them credit. The BFRO has the best sighting report uh, documentation out there. But if you go through all of their reports, and but there's thousands and thousands of them, uh, 80% of the ones that these things are, sta are looking in windows at houses are normally looking into bedrooms of young ladies anywhere from 11, 12, 13, to 14 years of age. Oh, crap, Rob. You got a 13-year-old daughter. You better watch out. Yeah. Hard enough to keep the boys away from <laughs> right, the human boys away from <laughs> Well, he, he Rob don't live in the country, does he? <laughs> no, I, no, I, we're, I, we're in a neighborhood. Yeah, I don't think we have them around there here. There you go. <laughs> I don't think you have a problem. <laughs> but then you have a septic tank system where they get rid of their water. I mean, you know, just because you live out in the country, even if you live in the mansion on a hill, nobody run a sewage line all the way out there. Right. I don't care what kind of septic tank system you have in your yard. It's still got to have an outflow. Yeah. And, you know, everything's into the EPA and OSHA and all that stuff now. But back in the day, and I'm talking about in the 40s, 50s, well, let's even go back farther than that with outhouses and things like that. You've got uh, people have got to go to the bathroom. And uh, when, you know, these young ladies start uh, becoming 
women, uh, if you flush or however you get rid of your waste, it's going, the scent's going to come through the water. And we're talking about an animal here who uh, survival depends on its ability to smell better than us. That's another big deal a lot of people do. They want to humanize these things. They think because they can hear these things vocalizing, they don't think that maybe it does this in a frequency range that we as humans cannot hear. Yeah. I, I believe their pitch is either going infra, which is above the range, or ultrasonic sounds, which is below the range. Uh, and I, I can not prove it, but I can show examples to show what I'm talking about. But, you know, that we're not getting there. Uh, this is the ultimate survivalist. <clears throat> now we're getting back to these sexually frustrated males. You have... We had at times with these horses, of course, we have mare horses too. Mare is a female horse. At times, we would find these primitive looking type braids in either their mane or their tail. If you own horses and you cared anything about your horses at all, you're going to curry and brush your horse's mane and tail before you stable them every evening unless you allow them to run wild on the property. Also know what people call witches not. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Have yeah, you I, heard I, of yeah I've heard knot? of that before. Yeah, before I even heard that interview okay. with you. Yeah. Normally, witches knots come from a horse scratching itself against either a fence post, barbed wire, any object that's stable that it can just, you know, scratch it. So it's like we do when we back up to a corner door or something to scratch our back that we can't reach, you know. Yeah. I mean, it just feels so good. But when when these horses come off of a tough winter or whatever, in their winter coats, they shed most of the hair, you know. And so a lot of this hair, they'll scratch it off because it's irritable to them. And a horse will also roll on the ground in cocoa bars and everything else, you know, and that feels so good to a horse, you know, they get on the roll over and they'll twitch their hips and their back front shoulders, scratching their back and everything. And when they stand up, you'll have uh, ground straw or cocoa burrs or stuff like that matted in the hair. And it looks like it's been braided. Uh, yeah. The witches knots are caused by this too. What we started noticing was this, because we owned horses. Certain nights after we would get up the next morning, our horses, especially the female, would be running rapidly back and forth across the pasture. Her eyes would be wall-eyed. I mean, it looked like she was terrified. She, a horse would do this, our horse did anyway, run itself up into a massive sweat. Now, only time a horse sweats like that is when it's under a lot of strain or a lot of stress. It's hard to make a horse sweat unless you, you've heard the saying, ridden hard and put up wet. Yeah. You know, 
that's what I'm discussing here. And usually when you ride the heck out of a horse and kind of overdo it, if you don't walk him down and let him cool off at his own temperature, you're going to founder your horse. And, but anyway, whatever, it was like this horse of ours had gotten into some Jimson weed or loco weed and had a colic on its stomach or something, but only way it would get any relief would be running back and forth across the pasture, kneeing, uh, N-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. That's what we call when a horse makes a sound is kneeing. Uh, it would just be acting sporadic, erratic, and just crazy. And we never could figure out what it was. We'd always eventually catch the horse up, and that's when we started noticing these, and it's usually four distinctive primitive type braids in its mane, and we'd also find it in its uh, tail. We never knew what this was doing. My stepfather even went so far as to say he thought the neighbors from around the curve was riding our horses when they roamed our property. And then they would just take the time to braid its hair. It was not a perfect braid as people imagine when you say the word braid. It was very primitive looking. Uh, we, I posted pictures of it on Darkness Radio. I, I, I don't have any available to post to you, but you can go on Bigfoot Outlaw Radio's Facebook page. And I, if you, if, a listener wants to subscribe to that. That's no problem. Everything's free. All you got to do is look it up on the internet and you can join uh, the web page. And we've got those pictures over there. Well, but, let me ask you this, Jim. Uh, didn't you have someone that actually saw something going on with the horses? That's, that's where I was hidden. Okay. <laughs> So there was this gentleman with two small boys whose wife left him, and he could not afford a home of his own. Uh, my grandfather knew him. So uh, this gentleman said, asked my grandfather, could he put a camper trailer, which was basically an RV, old Silver Stream camper, y'all know what I'm talking about, on yep. our property on the other side of the hill until he's able to build him a house or afford a home of his own. My grandfather is a good man. We take care of people in the South who are having bad times. So we actually went up there and fenced in squared off a uh, section to put that uh, silver string camper up there on that hill. <laughs> one night about one or two in the morning, I can't remember what, uh, this gentleman come to our house and called my grandfather to the front porch. And of course I went with him and he asked respectfully, would I go back in the house? Well, he started telling my granddaddy the story. When my grandfather got the gist of the story, he said, wait a minute. Uh, I, I want, uh, Jim to hear this cause, uh, I promise you, he already knows into these things too. This gentleman was very nervous about even bringing the subject up because I, at that point in time, figured out that my grandfather, just like what we discussed earlier, had never mentioned that we had things like this on our property. But see, his camp, his camper was on our property. He was woken up one night about one or two in the morning, 
And uh, he had a big, there we go again, booger light standing out there next to it. It was the only outside light out there. And what woke him up was he heard the horses screaming. And the only horses up there were our horses. Okay. And they was able to roam the property, you know, at will. And uh, there's nothing more terrifying than to hear a horse scream. If you've hmm. never heard it before, it would just tear you from the insides out. When a horse is in mortal panic and starts what we consider calling screaming, it is a sharp, loud sound. It woke up this gentleman and his two sons. And when he got out of bed, he had a pistol beside his bed, and so he just grabbed the pistol. He, he knew something was wrong with the horses. And it sounded like it was just right outside the other backside of his camper. So he tells his two boys to stay in the camper and he grabs his big flashlight and uh, he had his pistol and he steps outside and he walks around the front end of the camper and then uh, walks toward the uh, uh, south side of his camper. And he's able to see when we fenced this area off, you took a whole solid place of land there and you made it a natural L when you come from the road bed we had a fence fronting the road then we went up the hill in kind of like a half box square well when we did that that put where the horses were screaming right in the apex of that inverted L do you get what I'm saying in your mind yeah I guess you're saying mm-hmm yeah, it was dead ended. They had nowhere to go. They was pushed up against the where the two fences came together. I mean, there was nowhere to go. What it was, the mare was in that corner, pressed up against the corner, while her coat, which was at that time a one and a half year old stallion, was trying. He was rearing up, trying to fight off a male. Bigfoot, while the other Bigfoot, while he was distracted, was circling around and had grabbed the mare by the mane, intertwined its fingers Okay. in the mane. Actually, the hair of the mane was looped between his four fingers. It, when released... If you hold a horse's head down, I mean, hold it down. And we're talking about a horse that probably weighed 1,000, 1,200 pounds. I mean, this is a very strong animal. If a horse wants to lift you up, if you, you a 200-something pound man want to drape itself over its neck, yeah, that no horse doubt. can throw you. All right. This thing had grabbed the mare and had intertwined its fingers in its mane and was forcing its head down. The male that was behind it trying to get to the mare from the other end was sexually aroused because the gentleman, not only did he have the outside light, he had his flashlight, and he was shining on this whole scene while it was going on. Okay. Well, I mean, his that's two just... boys, right? His two boys, which are good friends of mine to this day, all three of them are still alive, but I protect their identities because, you know, they choose. They have shared a lot of things with me over the years, 
since all this, and they will continue to because they still live up there in the woods. All yeah. three of these guys do. They're still good old country boys. They also knew what know what I do as a hobby, which is this boogering. And uh, <laughs> I've been able to learn a lot from these guys. But you know, it's a this thing was holding the main down, and it was sexually aroused, trying to get to the mare. We put two and two together right on the front porch of my granddaddy's house. And that's when everything came clear as crystal glass. Whoa. Uh, could you imagine seeing something like that? I mean, not really. I've I never just, actually, yeah, but I know what you say. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think your well, whole sense of reality would just begin to crumble right then and there. Well, you know, uh, I've, investigated reports like i said earlier from all over the deep south i've also investigated other incidences with horses yeah i have investigated when these things are stressed as i mentioned earlier a horse will start sweating profusely I mean, a horse don't normally sweat unless you put it through a lot of stress well let me ask you and this jim this is what I want to ask well, you. If we have all these ahead. horses that if this is happening and this is, I mean, this is kind of a disgusting thought, but follow me here. I'm with Is you. there a way that if this is happening and Bigfoot is enjoying himself inside a horse or a cow, is there a way to get some of that DNA? And then we could prove this without well, having to kill here, Bigfoot. Here's the, here's the deal. I'm going to give you that running experiment again. We called a vet. This is back in the day when you did not have to load your horses or your cattle up and go to the vet. This is when the vet would come to you. Gotcha. You know, he'd jump in his truck and you, all you do, call him up. He'd come to your house the next day if he's not tied up with something else. Take care of the farm. We called the vet. Right, 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 right. Now, here we go with this. ID approach the vet without him thinking you're totally off the wall. <laughs> uh, what really caught the vet's attention was one thing that I did not tell you. And I, I, I can't remember if I had time to share it on darkness radio or not, but I have mentioned it on our Bigfoot outlaw radio show was when a horse sweats like it does one hand is holding the tail to move it out of the way the other hand is usually placed along the hip flank when a horse sweats like that and you put your hand on its body leave your hand there for about three minutes Move your hand back, your hand prints right there, the whole hand. Mm, okay. The vet saw the hand prints. Because the hand prints, when the horse was under the stress of the actual act of assault itself, sweating profusely, then when it was released after whatever, that's when this thing in a stage of panic 
would run rapidly back to the house. That's when it would just run all over the pasture until it just run itself to the extent where its knees were shaking. It was about to fold up under. The vet actually saw the handprints. All right. My grandfather said, what caused that? Should have seen the look on the vet's face. He didn't want to even garner an answer. Now, I'm agreeing with you on the sample. (laughs) Yeah. But who's going to take the sample? (laughs) Getting somebody, a professional out there. Yeah. You're going to have to find them. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe you could do it now because people seem more accepting of this stuff than they would have back in the 70s. You know, that's what we are hoping for eventually. Yeah. Because if you remember when we did that show, well, not that show, because we're talking about darkness radio. When we did this episode on Bigfoot Outlaw Radio, we was talking and still currently are because we are doing an investigation out of, uh, out of an undisclosed location in the panhandle of Florida at this very moment. This thing The owner of these horses are high-dollar show horses. They take these horses all across the United States, and they put them in these major equestrian horse shows. Uh, People have spent major books for these horses. This person called us because they found the braiding on the mane and the tail sent me pictures of it, the whole nine yards. This is in a very large professional barn stables, big money type operation in Florida. And she wanted to know what was going on with their horses. Somebody in the know who knew of me and knew of my experiences with this type deal referred her to me. And she called me and we started talking about it. When we started talking about this over the phone, before she would be able to describe, after she had described a few things that I knew what to look for, I started then telling her what kind of condition her horse was in. And it blew her mind that I knew this. Because then when I revealed to her, Because she suspected that's what was happening. She suspected that that, this thing was sexually assaulting her horses, but she did not want to say this out loud. That's why we keep her name, her outfit, the whole thing out of the equation. Gotcha. We actually, we did the show with her on there under a, anonymous name she actually agreed to come on the show when we finished doing that show we started receiving calls from ranchers all across the united states and several several of these ranchers thanked us profusely because they said we have told this story before and everybody wants to laugh at it Solve the mystery. They said, thank you for giving us clarity. Well, let me ask you this, Jim. Has there been, 
Has there been any sexual assaults on on women? Or just humans in general? In I don't know, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, here You never we know go. these days. I worked out in Oklahoma. The natives of this country have never... Everything has been taken from them. Um, I'm a quarter Choctaw myself. Uh, there's one group of people in this country, I mean, and I'm not saying this for uh, political reasons or nothing. Everybody screams Black Lives Matter now, you know. Oh, let's uh, feel bad for the uh, Mexican people who are illegally coming in the country, blah, blah, so forth and so on. There's one group of people in this country that have always, always have lost out, and that's the natives of this country. I'm talking about the first people. I'm talking about a word I don't like, Indians. Yeah. They I don't come from India. Yeah, I hear <laughs> and you. the reason I go that nine yards out of the way is out of total respect for the First Nation people because they are good people. They tried to tell people many, many, many years ago. And there are written accounts that are being laughed at and considered fables and myths and, oh, they just trying to get attention of these things sexually assaulting their women for years. Now, I've done already mentioned these things are opportunistic. Back in the day, Actually, I'll even go you an account that I learned from a Kiowa mentor of mine that taught me a lot when I was in Oklahoma. Back in the day, and this was before the Europeans come over here, the white man, when a woman came into her monthly, the warriors in the camp or of that culture or tribe if they was even looked upon by a woman while she was in this stage, he would lose his esteem. He, he would not be a man anymore. Yeah. I mean, this is just their culture. Right. When a woman started noticing that she was getting ready for her monthly, the tribe would always have a sort of sweat lodge teepee-type hut deal that was out of sight of the actual camp that they would go to, cared for by the barren, older women in the tribe who could not have children anymore. They would bathe them and keep them out of sight until they got over their uncleanness. Because if a woman in that stage being unclean would even look at a warrior, let alone touch him, he was not a warrior anymore. It took away his manhood, so to speak. Um, they could tell this better than I could. It's so, I have problems telling it because I try to be a gentleman and I know that there's lady listeners. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Okay. What happened is, think of it this way, the comings and goings of those tribal ladies, and this wouldn't be one or two, you know, say you got a camp of two, three hundred people, at least a hundred of them is going to be women, and maybe 
Most of them are childbearing women, and they're going to have a monthly. So when they have this monthly, they would go to this isolated tent or teepee, and that's where she would stay from uh, five to seven days until she was clean to come back home. While this happened in this location, you can just imagine, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness, and the natives are more cleaner than a lot of people think. You know, everybody always talks about the dirty old savages, but that's not the case. Anyhow, the smell was so dominant there that something started breaking into these teepees and kidnapping these women. And they would not see most of them ever again. Hmm. But they would always be an occasion where one would get away and find its way back to the camp and tell of these hairy giants who stole her and violated her. Well, the Kiowa Nation actually went to war with these things over this. They were, they knew that they had to exterminate these things. Okay. There's a big legend about it. Uh, but, you know, it's not funny, but could you just imagine the tribe, each, you know, tribe, each warrior set, S-E-C-T, there I go with my southern pronunciation again, so I'd rather spell it. You'd have those who would guard the camp. You'd have those warriors who were best at fighting. You'd have the warriors who would do this, do this. You know, it was different sets, different kind of uh, various war leaders. You never had a chief because each individual had a mindset of his own. But here we go again. You can't look at one of these women. You can't touch one of these women. So they had to find somebody who would guard over this teepee without looking at them or touching them. Now, think about that situation. Yeah. I mean, could if you was the one elected to guard the female's tent that night, but you can't look at them and you can't touch them, good gravy, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're getting as frustrated I mean, as Bigfoot. Well, think about it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they went to war, actually. I mean, they the Kiowa Nation still will speak within their tribe of these things. Uh, recently, recently, I knew a lady who was Wichita out there in uh, southwest Oklahoma. And she told of this woman who had a babu baby, babu, babu baby. That's what they call Bigfoot, babu. Uh, she volunteered this information. You know, most natives don't have much hair on their arms or on the chest or facial hair or, you know, I mean, it's just a deal that's uh, naturally... I guess over the centuries, it just occurs that way. Are, are sure. you guys with me? Yeah, I follow you on that. Her, she reportedly, reportedly was sexually assaulted by one of these things, uh, possibly in the 40s or the 50s. Her offspring, which she did have a child, had eyebrows that grew together, more of a sloped, overhanging forehead was more 
taller than the average native of that uh, nation. Lumbered around, was strong as an ox. He could talk, but he had a violent temper. Uh, this lady who told of this, he even married a woman or two out there, and he'd have these mood swings, and he was real just uh, things would set him off. But amongst the tribe itself, everybody said he got Babu blood. He got Babu blood. And that's how you'd find the story, you know, because each family would tell the story. It was kind of like people, you know, in church, which I, I hate saying church because a lot of people get on me about that. But you know how busybody women are. They always got some juicy bit of gossip, gospel, uh, gossip, and they can't wait to tell the next one, you know. And how much this has grown over the years, who knows. But it all centralizes and turns into the fact that that person is descended from um, native and a Bigfoot or Babu. So are these Babu. people around? Are there, are there descendants of this person around they, in the they area? They say they are. They say they are, but there you go again. I mean, uh, we need some genetic testing done here. That's what I'm screaming, and I'm sitting here. I mean, yeah. everything the white man has taken from the natives of this country, they are very leery. They are very mistrusting. They, I mean, if you walk up to one, say just me and you walked at one off the street, Hey, Hey, I heard that you got Bigfoot blood in you. Let's go and check you out. I mean, how far you think they they just look at you funny. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Jim, we're, we're we're running out of time. uh, I told you. I know it's, it's, it's usually that way. I think we could talk about this all night and I'd love to talk to you just like offline too, at some point, but, uh, tell everybody where, absolutely. Tell everybody where they can, uh, they can find you, uh, where they can find Bigfoot outlaws. Tell us about that again. And, uh, like, I yeah, like I mentioned earlier, uh, all you have to do, if you've got a computer and you know, cell phones have computers now, most people listen to these shows off their cell phone, but all you have to do is Google or whatever search engine that you use. You can Google for Facebook. We do have a Facebook page. We've got two of them, by the way. One we've got that's called the Bigfoot outlaws. The other one, that's our Facebook page for our radio show, which is the radio show is called uh, Bigfoot Outlaw Radio, and you can find it on YouTube.com, and you have to do a search for it. I promise you it'll pop up because we, for some reason, everybody wants to listen to a bunch of rednecks talk about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> but uh, we do have some of the best investigators across the country. We're very willing to help. Uh, we don't uh, talk about and go into ESP uh, um, portals, interdimensional travel. We know these things are flesh and blood. They're just like an animal. Plus, we've got our Facebook page. If you're a member of Facebook, you can type in Bigfoot Outlaw Hideout, H-I-D-E-O-U-T. If you get there, all you have to do is send a friend request, and we'll admit you, and you can talk to any one of us because we make ourselves very accessible. 
Very awesome, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on. I mean, it's been it's been great. I think we could get into a lot more stuff, and we'd love to come down there and Bigfoot hunt with you sometime. Oh, yeah, hey, absolutely. Hey, man, I have no problem with it. We don't have nothing to hide. Uh, like I said, I was at Land Between the Lakes a month and a half ago, and that's yeah. actually a lot closer to you guys than chasing us all over the south yeah that's very close it's very close <laughs> we will be back at land between the lakes too in the future so you know uh keep up with me and uh i we don't have nothing to hide you are more than welcome to attend any of our outings well hey let me know sir and uh we're gonna well, close you this- could do you could actually do a live broadcast if you wanted to from it i mean that's how assured i am of what you know, we could produce. Get your, get your portable mic ready, Rob. I got it. All right, Jim, we're going to (laughs) close this section out. Stay on the line for us. And guys, we'll be right back to close out the show on conspiracy normal. All right, guys. Um, that was uh, that was quite an interview, man. Yeah, I, yeah. I was. Uh, that was that was he. He was going 100 miles an hour on this Bigfoot stuff. What yeah, and a it's, cool guy though. Yeah, very cool. Um, and it's it's a. Uh, once again, you've stumbled across a new take on an old topic that I had never heard anything about. What was that? Oh, just the. Um, the more aggressive, darker nature of Bigfoot in general, I guess. Yeah. Or rather the, the southern um, boogers. Yeah, whatever they may be, right? Right, right. Well, this is something I mentioned. Uh, we were talking about David Pilates and his work. And that's, I'd love to get David Pilates on the show, but it would probably be like 50 shows because it's just there's so much stuff in his missing 411 series. And we've kind of covered some of that stuff. But uh, that, that stuff is frightening. And that that story that that Jim described about the guy being killed and stuffed back in his truck, I mean, that was that was scary. Yeah, you know, that's, that's some scary stuff. Now the horses thing, I mean, that's that's because that's just kind of weird. I mean, let's, let's be honest about that. I mean, you know, if, but man, there might be something to that if he's getting reports like that. Yeah, and, and 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 something like this is going on. I don't know. I mean, I, I I came away from that interview fairly convinced about the things that he was claiming. Uh, another aspect of it was was that he doesn't want to kill any of these creatures. He doesn't believe that he has to. He d- he doesn't feel. I guess that Jim does not feel like he's obligated to prove to the rest of the world that these things exist. He just investigates it. Right. I takes do. it as a given. I do think he keeps, um, or I do think he should, uh, keep trying to go for the genetic. Yes. Genetic testing side of it though. I mean, if they get this thing and it's, cause that's the whole thing with me for Bigfoot. Like I can listen to thousands of testimonials and I love it. I love hearing the stories, but I'll, forever be on the fence until I either see something or there's same here, you know, physical evidence. So same here. I mean, 
I used to really buy it a lot more than I did. I'm still very much on the fence. Um, you know, I admitted to Jim that, you know, I was kind of a skeptic about it. Um, and I'm just not, uh, I'm, I'm not fully convinced. Uh, now, you know, I listened to him tonight. I listened to his conviction and the stories that he's telling me. And I'm like, okay, you know, there, there could be something to it. Uh, I think my main problem is, is that st- those hoaxes, man, back in 2008 with the people claiming that they had shot Bigfoot and it turned out just to be a Halloween suit. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of stuff was just like, okay, this is just ridiculous. This is just silliness. And well, yeah, but to be fair, that happens in every facet of the, you know, the topics that we talk about in this show. And those are the people that are, they're killing it for people that are out there seriously trying, you know, man, I just want, I want somebody to prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that this creature exists. It's like, to me, it's not going to be very earth shattering if this, if this creature is revealed. Um, I just want it to be proven that these things are out there and then we can go on. And now I think there's a school of thought that says, well, if we do, we know it's there, then people might start just go nuts and start going out to try to kill them. I don't know. Maybe there is that aspect. We could. I don't think there'd be a whole lot of that though. Yeah. We could declare this thing an endangered species really quick mm-hmm. and take care of that. But it's just like, I want the proof, man. I want the proof. And that's why I was just like, hey, if Bigfoot is enjoying himself inside of a horse or a cow, there's got to be DNA there. Yep. <laughs> okay. We know how this works. Yes. There's got to be. And if you can if you can get somebody to come over there and enlist a vet to come over there and get this DNA, take it to a laboratory, and they prove it's no known animal that we know of. It's a primate. It's close to human. It, it, and that's another thing. If if these if these Indians are telling the truth, and there's there's a a a, a baby produced by a union of this creature and a human being. Then this thing has to be fairly close to us. Right. It has to be more like Neanderthal right. type of a wild man situation. We can't make babies with chimpanzees. Right. You know, even though we're 97% of the same genetics. You know, Stalin tried this in the 30s, apparently, and it with his army of eight men idea, and it did not work. So this would have to be an animal that is close to us. Genetic. I mean, it has to be. Yeah, very close. So that in that in and of itself is fascinating because if that would just prove that you know these we didn't kill all the other kind of hominid creatures off this planet, right? Which and that's that's one of the aspects to me that's always fascinating is there at one time there was yep we don't know how many but there was definitely lots of other you know uh, close relatives of of humans around near us. And we, we just happened to win out over the food sources and kind of taking over that niche universally. And, 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 and hairy bipeds Mm -hmm. all over the place. And we've already proven, you know, that we have Neanderthal DNA. Right. So, I mean, who who knows? I'm, I personally, I'd love it, man. If the, if they, if this thing came out, 
and we knew that it was there and we knew it was close to us humanly as humanly close to us as possible no pun intended then i it would change things but i think guys we're going to call it a night uh we are missing our our other hairy primate luke <laughs> hopefully he may be here at some point or never who knows but uh next time we have robert guffey talking about his book camellio and this is a story about uh basically group harassment harassing somebody with either technology or group stalking until they go insane and i've already started into this book and i can tell you this is some strange stuff i'm gonna be glad to get into it but i want to thank everybody guys and thank you all for listening and uh we will be back next week on conspiranormal Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.